Welcome to Frontline. Hello and welcome to Frontline. My name is David Gill. And I'm Andrew James. And in this episode, we are going to be exploring the world of trauma-informed practice. And in particular, how we go about embedding it into our services, teams, organization, or maybe even just our individual practice. We think that now is the time to, to maybe tackle this subject a bit bit more head-on, a bit more of a focus, because I know we've we've touched upon it in other episodes, but it feels like now is the right sort of time to maybe do a little bit more of a deeper dive. What do you what do you think, Andrew? Yeah, uh, it's something that we've, like you say, it's it's been mentioned, it's been skirted around, but it's high time that we jump straight in with it. <laughs> and and I think that's the joy of pretty much all of our guests so far have naturally just started to talk about trauma-informed approaches, trauma-informed care, trauma-informed practice. Again, the terminology is an interesting one. I imagine something we will discuss as we go along, but it's just naturally one of those subjects at the minute that everyone is talking about. And in terms of, I guess, my day-to-day job, 90% of what I do is trauma-informed. It's just what everyone is talking about. And I think today it's about maybe really going back, what are the basics and why is it so important that we we tackle it head on? It, it's something that you're hearing quite a lot in, in this field, whether you are in the public sector, in the the, the, the um, charity sector, or maybe even in the private sector. And I think it's it has the danger of getting lost and becoming a buzzword. So what's your understanding then, Andrew? What's your understanding of what this means? Before you go into that, you have to really look into what actually what it is that we mean by trauma. Take it down to its most basic level. So... First, if we were to look to answer that question, what do we mean by trauma? In my criminal justice-based head and in a lot of people's heads, I think the word can immediately conjure up some quite dark and quite bleak things, usually involving abuse of, of kinds of things of that nature. But in reality, it's any sort of distressing or, or, or significant event that has a major impact on someone. And that could be, rather than something as um, bleak and dark as abuse, although, of course, that would qualify. It could be something such as, you know, being involved in a car crash, a significant bereavement of of, of a loved one, especially uh, losing a parent at a young age, for example. Uh, The breakdown, significant breakdown of relationship that causes uh, significant emotional hardship. You know, these are all things that could be considered significantly traumatic and things that, if you start to look at it in wider terms than just in a, a criminal justice bracket, which, I mean, I, I say this from my perspective, I think the word immediately conjures up those sorts of uh, mental images for people. That just could be the, the, the areas in which I've worked, but still, I think that it does kind of conjure up those images. When you start to look at it in a wider sense, you start to see how it can be a more, a, a wider range and wider impacting thing that can uh, affect absolutely everyone has the potential to impact absolutely everyone at any time really so then when you're looking at what you mean by being trauma-informed or a trauma-informed approach then it would be 
uh, being able to recognize the signs of trauma and then embedding into work how then you would work with people and manage people in those situations. And I'm glad that you mentioned about the term itself and people's understanding of it, because it is vital that we understand this because we all have our own perspectives on it. We all have our own experience with that word. Again, like you say, based on the jobs that we do, you're going to be looking at it from that perspective because it's it's how our brains work. If we if we are in an environment day in day out, that's that's what we what we see. That's what we're going to be responding to. And I think that's sometimes the danger with this is that how subjective an experience it is. Because when we are working in these fields, we are talking about safeguarding issues, abuse, neglect, childhood traumas, adult traumas, stuff to do being a victim of crime, or you know all those big things that you mentioned. But for other people, it could be could be stuff that can be missed or as perceived as perhaps being smaller when we don't mean they are smaller, but for the observer, it might be easily missed. You know, someone hearing a comment that other people would say, oh, it's just a comment. But for that person, it might trigger off so much within them or it might be accumulation of events, you know, little bits chipping away. Someone once described it to me uh, as like a backpack someone putting little bits of little rocks in at first you don't notice but by the time your backpack's full you're going to struggle to be carrying it and that last rock that fall makes you to fall over might be something tiny it might just be you miss a bus or you get a bad phone call and it might just be that one trigger point that just sends you absolutely over the edge because of just how our brains respond to this Mm. and i think Again, we, we always, I always remind people about this. When it comes to trauma, it's always worth going right back to the brain and remember that what trauma is is just your brain doing what it should be doing. It's most primitive level, keeping you safe. But we have a more complex brain on top of that. It's trying to make sense of it, but it can't always do that. So you, you've got your primitive brain saying, this is a threat, I've got it covered. And you've got your complex brain going, why can't I move past this? Why can't I understand this? And that's why the impact of trauma is often long-term, life-shaping, life-altering, because it just changes your perception, your views on things. So, yeah, that subjective nature, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned it because it's such an important part of this. Yeah, I mean, it, it's something that I see in, in my line of work quite a lot. And it's even to the point where, I mean, you're, you're right, as you mentioned, you know, from an outside observer for someone, it, it could seem quite minimal, but then to, to the actual person who's who's living the experience, it's quite significant. But then conversely, in my line of work, you have moments when you you ask people outright, you know, do you have any experience of trauma? And the word is so powerful and emotive. Their first thought, especially I find in, in um, younger males, that their response is generally to be, oh, no, 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 no trauma. No, no, no trauma. But then when you actually drill down and go through their experiences in life and things that have happened to them, you usually do find some events that you would, as a practitioner, certainly see and would classify as a traumatic event. And you see how it has altered their kind of thinking and behavior, maybe because of the um, emotive power of the word and the perceived weakness it would be in admitting that something would be traumatic. It, it, it's almost seen as something to shun in a way. With With this, I think sometimes it's worth talking about the the emotion of shame shame is such a powerful emotion that holds people back and the challenge we have is that shame and trauma are often so closely interlinked 
in that you you experience shame from being a victim of trauma and then you maybe experience shame because you don't want to talk about it or open up about it because then you are the victim you are this person that has been attacked or impacted in some way and then there is that feeling those worries and as you mentioned maybe with younger males you have that masculinity impact of i shouldn't feel this way or i shouldn't have been impacted by this because i'm a man and i need to be strong and i think that can again it's all of this the, the culture side of things, how how it shapes people. You you mentioned about asking people about trauma. I, I was mm. that's the, the the great irony with trauma is that, particularly from a perspective of how we respond to it, I, I think we need to get better as a society at understanding it, recognizing it. But when it comes to responding to it, I think we need to get better at maybe avoiding those terms. And rather than saying, "Have you experienced trauma?" Say, "Understand a little bit more about you." You know, tell you know, soften it down a little bit. So you, you, mm. we're almost getting people to a point where they they come to their own conclusion whether something is a trauma or not, rather than saying, "Oh, look, this happened to you as a child. That was a trauma, wasn't it?" Because that person might say, "Well, it was tough. It was hard, but I don't see it as a trauma." Because if I do. That gives me that guilt, that shame, that embarrassment, and that can hold me back. Whereas if I can look at it from a different perspective and say, that's helped make me strong, that's helped me make, make me a survivor, fair enough. That person, if you ticked a box and say, well, he's experienced trauma, but in terms of the relationship and that understanding, he doesn't need to use that word. That's something that I've gone through in, in report writing process. The questions of trauma never used to be part of the report. Uh, when I first started writing them, it's something that come in in recent years, and it is it's a positive uh, improvement to the report writing process. But you're right; the, the language is, as it often is in these situations, it can be quite cold. And when I first started going through it with that with the trauma question in it, I think I did first one one or two perhaps I'd, I'd use the word trauma, but I did, and I have moved past that now and started just to ask. I, can't, I won't be able to remember the exact word in that I use now, and I'm sure there'll be some improvements needed on it. But I generally try to ask a question of if they've had uh, any significant events in their life that have had a major impact on them, either positive or negative, just to see what the response is. I think that was partly born out of, like I mentioned before, the responses that you can get just to the word trauma. Y you tend to get one or two responses. Either people will immediately come out and tell you the things that have happened in them, or you will just get people who clam up. There doesn't seem to be any sort of middle ground. It's all or nothing with it. Whereas asking people to be positive, to talk about positive or negative experiences can generally at least provoke discussion. And that's, I guess, part of the part of the process. This is a subject, again, understanding trauma in some depth and understanding what it means to be trauma-informed. It wasn't something that maybe crossed my path until about six years ago. And all my my background of working in the, the third sector and the public sector as well, this was never something that crossed my mind. It was always about responding to what you see, respond to the behaviours, deal with it, respond, deal respond it became that that was how you were trained that's how you you dealt with things and you do it because that's the culture you think that you, you're doing your good job and you're helping people and supporting people because you know you see this you're very black and white you have to respond to be equal for everyone and then like i said this was a i guess a light bulb moment for me that i've came across this as a subject and it was like let's look a bit bit more in depth at why those behaviors are happening because, again, it's about see, trying to challenge those labels. 
they are an aggressive person. No, they're acting in an aggressive way. Why? Yes, yes, they are. The aggression is still there. But if we try and understand a little bit more, the why starts to help us. And it sounds obvious. I always say this to people is, is sometimes you, you, you sit there and think, well, all this is the obvious. It's basics. But it's like if you've come from a culture where you've been taught to respond to behaviors, taught to respond to what's in front of you, and as you mentioned as well, the paperwork, assessments, report writing, initial engagements, they are such a pivotal point to build relationships up. But they are usually the bits that have really strict questions. And if you're not trained up in a way that helps you understand that you can rephrase those questions, people ask them verbatim. One of the first places I worked at, the, the assessment form was horrible. It was like 20 pages long, really intrusive questions before you even got to know people. And one of the first questions on the first page was like a little snapshot was, are you feeling suicidal today? And because I, my boss at the time told me that, I was walking around going, are you feeling suicidal today? And again, the, the first time someone turned around and said, yes, I sat there and thought, oh, I don't know how to handle this. I don't know how to respond because now... I've probably unlocked something in his own background, maybe to deal with trauma, to do with trauma, perhaps, or something else. Either way, I was in a situation because I was just using the form as the assessment, whereas the assessment, the engagement comes from the interaction. Those tools, whether it's uh, something to type or something to write down, are just the recording tool. And I think, again, this, this shows us why this approach is about a culture shift, a culture change. There is an organization called SAMSA, which stands for the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration. Clues, perhaps in the name there, that this is an American organization. And they have, for the last 20 years, they've been developing what it means to be trauma-informed. And a lot of their background, like I say, the early noughties, it was all produced there, the, 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 the first sort of networks looking at this and responding to it. And a lot of this came about from something called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study in the mid-90s. Again, there's been some pushback on this recently, but I will always say that whatever people's challenges and, and reflections are now, it's 25-year-old piece of research. You know, we are learning, developing. I think what that did at the time was recognise how many young people are affected by trauma, the so-called adverse childhood experiences to do with abuse, neglect, or other household impacts. And it just showed how many people are affected from a young age. And if they're affected from a young age, what does that mean when they are then adults? So this organization for the last 20 years have been building this whole approach up. And here in the UK, we don't have an agreed idea of what trauma-informed practice, trauma-informed care looks like. Scotland and Wales are so much far ahead, more far ahead than we are here in England. They are developing, Scotland have got trauma-informed toolkit. They're, they're building other uh, training resources for next year in 23. Wales have just produced a trauma-informed framework. All of this is building on this original bit of research and approach from SAMHSA. And they boiled it down to four things that I always talk about with, with organisations. that To be truly trauma-informed means four key areas. It means we must realise that trauma is real but that people have the opportunity to recover, move on, grow. But it's about putting it into balance. Yes, trauma is real, but no one is beyond help. That might sound a very black and white way of, of looking at things. People say, but yes, what about is some people? What about? And I'm like, I'm not going to get into the complexities of the, the odd person here or there. We're talking about generally always coming in from the perception that people can be helped. So we must realize the second point is about recognizing that actually what we are seeing 
the behaviors that we come across, the reactions, the coping mechanisms, drugs, alcohol, mental health diagnosis, so many of them are the signs and symptoms of their trauma, what they've gone through and how they're coping with it. Even things like behavior, not engaging, getting angry, walking out. We want to sit there and go, oh, this guy didn't want to be helped. He's really annoying me today. But what this is about is taking a step back and saying, yeah, you still might feel like that because that's very valid to feel like that as well because you are human. But understanding that actually if we take a step back, we recognize that often this is a sign of, of previous previous experience, previous trauma. And then the third one, which is often some of the challenges are, and I imagine something we'll talk about later, is about responding and about how we integrate this into our policies, our procedures. And for anyone out there working with human beings is in your practice. How can I go about taking this knowledge and really thinking about what I do? Your example of rephrasing that question on the uh, on the report, perfect example. You can respond tweaking it here and there. It doesn't have to be huge shifts. And then the last one is about resist, resist re-traumatization, doing whatever we can to make it feel like we're not causing further harm. We're not compounding what is already there, doing what we can to build on safety. So those are the four R's, which sounds straightforward, but we we know it isn't always that 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 way. So what, what's your thoughts on the four R's then about realizing, recognizing responding and resisting re-traumatization when you actually drill down and look into a lot of this you see it's a lot of it you you would think seems quite straightforward seems quite common sense it seems right and almost like the decent thing decent thing to do the, the way to treat people with decency to give people a level of of respect and building people up it, it seems a straightforward thing to do but it isn't always that way within within cultures unfortunately within business cultures or even within within societies there is a lot more of a a move away from what would be called the general community spirit over the last i don't know certainly certainly within my lifetime but certainly within certainly within the last 15 15 20 years there's been a bit of shift away from community spirit where people would be more inclined to you know Checking on your neighbours, looking, uh, looking out for people around, knowing even knowing who your neighbours are, to the to the extent where people nowadays might might live in a house for five, ten, fifteen years and not actually know who lives next door, and it's it's that basic level of social interaction and caring for other people that kind of gets lost in this. So relearning and retraining and refiguring out the importance of general care for other human beings is is a difficult thing to do. It's again, the culture, when you overlap this with particularly, again, public sector, third sector organisations, funding is, it, it's non-existent a lot of the times. Every year it feels like this whole industry of supporting people, helping people, the criminal justice system, charity sector, do, do more with less. That's often one of the phrases you hear if people are in jobs where they carry caseloads, the caseloads shoot up. What used to be about building relationships suddenly got superseded by risk management. And rather than safeguarding being seen as a proactive tool to help people, it became a panic tool that was about finger pointing and blaming. Again, I'm, I'm making some sweeping judgments here, but it, it's unfortunately true in so many areas. And I think what trauma-informed practice is about is about just hitting that big reset button and just going... It's about people at the end of the day. 
and again, you know, when you talk about some of the other subjects we've talked about, and you know, some of the other guests, for example, Alistair talk about his approach within recycling lives and about how if you work with people, give them that support, you break these cycles of behaviors. And again, one of the challenges that you find with things like adverse childhood experiences, what people go through, you're more likely to carry on those behaviors. You're more likely to, to pass it on to future generations if you have children. I mean, I, I will say this to people, and, and for people listening, I want you to just take a, a minute here and just, I, I want to ask you the question of, have you had a normal upbringing? And just take a second to think about that. Because we, we like to talk about that on on the news, on the media, on or, or we hear about, or people talk about all the time about a normal upbringing. There is no such thing as a normal upbringing. Normal doesn't exist. The only thing that exists is our normal. Every individual, your own normal, what you have gone through, what you've experienced, what shapes you. Again, your culture, your background, your family structure, you know, whether there was challenges in that family to do with mental health problems, drugs and alcohol issues, all of that forms your normal. And it's only when you get to be an adult, you look back on it and go, my normal was different to even probably my siblings, other people opposite, friends at school. We all have our own experiences. But then if we don't challenge that and we're bought, we then go into working cultures where we're just told to respond to behaviours, we, reaff- we, we almost like reaffirm our normal and start to see everything through that lens. What trauma-informed practice is about, we often hear this idea of a lens. You're looking at things through the lens of trauma. How might this be for a trauma survivor? How might this engagement be, this assessment be? And just trying to maybe take a different approach with it. And I think that feeds in quite nicely to something that you mentioned at the start of when you started talking about the um, the, the, the four R's, when you mentioned how it's about recognising that trauma is real, but then also that people can change or, can, or can, that the brain can repair and people can change and move, move on from that. And, you know, you said that uh, people, you don't want to get bogged down in, oh, yeah, but what about this person? What about that person? That's, that's the point, I guess, of, of all of this. It's not about the about any particular individual. It's about accepting that every single every single person, every single relationship that you have, every you have the capacity to help. Doesn't necessarily mean it will happen. It just means that there is the capacity for that to happen. But then you also have to accept in that that the that the converse to that, that the reverse of that is true. That there is also the capacity to harm. And it's making that judgment and making that proactive choice. Are you going to be proactively helping or are you going to just sit and do nothing, which then realistically means you will be accepting harm? And that's, I think, what the, for me at least, the key principle of the, um, or the main part of the trauma approach comes from. It's accepting responsibility for that capacity to help and then proactively finding ways to do so. The harm that people can cause, I don't think they realise how how much it can impact on an individual. And if you think about the worlds that we're talking about here, if we, if we do just talk about the criminal justice side of things and the charitable sector, let's be honest, there are so many people who access the, these services, whether they choose to or they don't choose to, they are forced, criminal justice, for example. So many people that do are doing so because of their traumatic backgrounds. And 
every time they have been let down, whether it's maybe by the education system growing up or people in their families that should have protected them that didn't, or when they're in an adulthood being let down by relationships or maybe even other professionals in the past, all of that puts a wall up, a barrier up. So when we are engaging with people, we, we're looking at people and going, you, you might have been let down by 40, 50 different people or institutions over your lifetime. It's no wonder you are deemed to be angry, aggressive, or you are deemed to be someone who doesn't want to be helped because that's your normal. That's what you've you've that's how you've perceived the world. The world is a scary place. And I'm going to put my walls up. And that's why I say to people, this approach, yes, it, it, it's a good thing. It's a culture shift, but it's not easy because we are trying to work with a lifetime of behaviors and we can't expect to just wave our magic wands and make a difference. And that's why I always talk about uh, post-traumatic growth rather than post-traumatic healing, because healing implies you're going back to something. And for so many people who've experienced trauma, particularly those early years traumas, that complex trauma, they're not healing. They're not going back to anything because they, they have nothing to go back to. It should always be about growth. And that comes from help and support. And even when you are working in industries like yours, criminal justice, where you're often seen as the bad guy because you are you know, basically telling people or pushing them on a path where they may, might not have control over, just showing a human side in those interactions can make such a difference. Because again, that neural plasticity in the brain, the ability for that brain to re rewire itself it's a powerful thing. We can we can all do something about it, but morally and ethically, it's the right thing to do. But the flip side of that, it's hard. It's hard work, and people just don't always feel they've got the time and the capacity to do that. Looking and considering some of the kind of challenges that you face in this situation, you've, you've mentioned some there. I guess considering the way you're going about it, and I think you are you're right in how you said you, you're not you're not healing. There is, and in a similar way, in terms of as a practitioner, you shouldn't be looking at it in a way of trying to achieve a kind of perfection. It's just wanting to get better and have a deeper understanding as you go. It's recognizing that, yes, you can do a lot of positive work, but also you don't need to be the person or even just in a relationship setting. You don't need to be the one who causes the initial trauma if through carelessness or bad practice re-traumatization can take place mm. so i know that may put may may make people feel pressure to gain a level of perfection or improvement faster and there is obviously a, a, a need to get to grips with the the, the basics of of the uh, process quick as people can but i'm understanding that it is an ongoing process for people going through as well as practitioners something that everyone needs to improve at as they go forward it's not an easy thing to do. I know I've said that repeatedly, and I think it's it's just so important that we, we recognize that. And, and as you say, when, when people talk about making changes, I always I always say to, to, to people it's a, it's about marginal gains, little little wins here and there. Because when you start to look, uh, particularly if you're so, a, a senior manager and you start to look at your all your your organization or your team, and you start to look at everything, you start to think, oh my. It's, it's about staff. It's about how they interact. It's about this. It's, you start to get lost in and maybe overwhelmed and trying to, as you say, try and achieve this perfection that's just incredibly hard to achieve. 
because no one could do it. You know what I mean? And, and, and our national policy, our government policy, isn't one of being trauma-informed, as I mentioned at the beginning. So it's about, again, those marginal gains, those little shifts that we can make here, here and there to really help people and really sort of, sort of make a difference. Because one little shift here or there can make can, can change someone's life. And I think we sometimes forget that. You know, what you say to someone now might resonate with them five years down the line. They might sit there and go, you know, this guy once said to me, you might be that person. We don't always recognize that 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 is the case. But it is hard. It's not without its challenges, like we said, time and resources. And if we're thinking about one of the biggest challenges we haven't mentioned yet, which is staff, the impact on staff, that day in, day out, hearing people's experiences of trauma we can be impacted by something called vicarious trauma, where you where you are literally vicariously absorbing other people's trauma, and it leaves an emotional impact on a person's brain. And it's been shown in studies that people who experience vicarious trauma have symptoms very similar to post-traumatic stress disorder. You just absorb too much of other people's stories. And it's one of the reasons why, I guess, the field we are in has such a high level of staff sickness and staff turnover because... We just get so overwhelmed by this. And if we don't have the right systems in place to respond, we vote with our feet. People say, well, why on earth am I doing this job? I don't get paid a lot. I try and make a difference. I don't feel like I am. I am off to stack shelves in the local supermarket because at least I could switch my brain off and not feel like this. And unfortunately, I think, particularly since the lockdowns and the pandemic, people have maybe thought about that quite a lot. And we have seen such a challenge in the, the field at the minute in terms of recruitment because people just don't want to feel like this anymore. And I think when we talk about challenges, we have to recognize that I, I guess from an organizational perspective, you have to think about how you look after your staff as, as much, if not more than how you work with people. Because at the end of the day, if you don't look after your staff, there is no one else to work with them. You can't work with anyone else. I know, I know this is something we've touched on in, in uh, previous episodes, so I won't dwell on it too long. But what I will say is that I have been, or I, I am aware that there have been uh, quite a few recruitment drives for staff, yes, within probation, but also in, 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 in other um, uh, criminal justice associated charities and, and third sector companies. And this, although obviously is to fill a gap in the existing workforce, this would be a prime opportunity to start to affect a, a, a real culture change mm. of actually managing, as you say, mm. both staff, both service users and staff, because that is the only realistic way that we'll get a proper embedded trauma-informed approach nationally and also a way to mitigate for that 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 um, staff retention rate. I've talked to uh, senior managers in the past and commissioners as well about this as an approach. And I said to people, even if you don't buy into it from the moral ethical standpoint of this is just the right way of doing things, which I I think I you'd find it hard to kind of disagree. You probably have to be a very cold hearted individual to to not feel that way. But I'm like, even if you don't feel like that, or more realistically, if people don't think it's it's a priority because things are just too tough at the minute, I say to people that taking this approach means your staff feel more valued, less likely to go off sick, 
more skilled, more able to respond to the people they work with, therefore more likely to get better outcomes, more ticks in the box, more ability to, to, to achieve your targets and get the funding you need to get new contracts. It starts to become like a, from a business side of it as well, even if you don't buy into the other side of it, just purely from monetary business side of it, it makes absolute sense because it saves you money. Absolutely. With a bit of investment up front, which is the challenge, longer term services become far more cost effective. I think at this point, it's worth bringing in our guest who can talk about their own trauma-informed journey and the challenges they have had along the way and perhaps how they've responded to it. And welcome to our guest. So let's begin with who you are and where you're from. Hi, Dave. I'm Leslie Howard, and I work for Change Grow Live, and I'm the National Homelessness League. How have you found implementing a trauma-informed approach on a national perspective to all the different teams you work with? So I um, connect with the teams. Obviously, it's fantastic now that we all use teams, so um, across our organisation to connect. So it'd be quite difficult in my role previously if it was a, a national lead to, to connect with everyone on a regular basis and bring those people together. We'd all have to meet in one big place. Actually, I chair four national meetings a month. So I bring together the frontline workers and the managers from across the homelessness and outreach services. In, we have sort of meetings to discuss particular topics such as women's homelessness or how we support non-UK nationals that are rough sleeping at the moment. And it's just fantastic to be able to get everybody in that virtual room, if you like, and, and talk about how we are working with those people and that trauma-informed approach of supporting individuals. And I think it's in, if I'm really, I'm probably a bit biased, but as I'm honest, I think street outreach services and people working homelessness services have been using that trauma-informed approach for a long, long time without realising that that's what it was, using that personalisation, because that person's not coming into a service and saying, I would like some help. They're actually on the street saying, I don't want any help. A lot of people are saying, don't, you know, I don't want to engage with you. So we've had to be very creative in how we engage with people. So bringing people together in those national meetings is the, the best way of being able to connect with them as a group and hear what's going on for them. And so we'll, what we will do is have the first half hour of a meeting will be a bit of a check-in. So people will say what's going on in their particular service. So it might be someone that's in a Manchester service that's talking about best practice. That is, a, you know, someone in a service in London saying that's fantastic. I didn't know that we could do that. Um, so it's that whole sharing of best practice and that, I think, discussing how we work with people that have experienced trauma and, and they're coming together as, a, as an organisation on, on a regular basis to discuss that. What have you found has been some of the main challenges then of taking this approach nationally? I think it's getting the message out there to everybody. Everybody's so busy. Everybody's, especially, you know, everybody's really busy. And I think the outreach services, particularly at this time of year, because it's the cold weather, and the severe weather emergency protocol will be activated. So it's getting people to stop and say, actually, come on, we need to get together and talk about this. There's this fantastic, um, you know, I might be sharing something like um, a webinar or some training or 
um, some, some guidance information and it's getting people to stop and say, right, we need to slow down a little bit and we need to, to think about our sort of personal development, you know, someone's personal development and how that can then go on to, to help them to support their service users. So, for example, modern day slavery, you know, is, is something that is, is still such a challenge, particularly for people who are who are sleeping, who are homeless. It's something that we're seeing more of um, because people are vulnerable, because they're, they're, they're so vulnerable to being exploited. So things like that, bringing people together and saying, you know, we need to talk about this. This is how do we equip the staff to, to, to be able to identify things and work in a trauma-informed way with someone who has, for example, been um, the victim of um, modern slavery, which is a really complex issue. So, you know, it's just ensuring that people can come together and they've got the time to talk about it. So for me, the challenge is actually people being so busy, <laughs> if I'm really honest, they're so busy getting on with everything they're doing to slow down and say, you know, let's talk about this, let's talk about what's going on within services. And they're, they're doing some fantastic pieces of work, but I want to hear about it. Everybody else wants to hear about it. We need to share this. And how we're all working. So I think sometimes that's a bit of a challenge in people sharing what they're doing with others, just just slowing down a little bit to be able to do it. But that's the the reason, you know, in my role that I have these meetings and and I go out to the services as well. I go out and visit, you know, we were saying earlier, and the different services in like London or Manchester, Leeds, and seeing what's going on and me hearing about that and and, and bringing that back to the organisation. From your perspective, then, what would you say should be the priority for outreach workers? So any anyone perhaps working in the outreach world listening to this, what would you say should be their priorities when engaging service users from a trauma-informed perspective? I think listening, just listen and, and pick up. That is one of the real, it's just, it's such a simple thing, but just listen to someone and see what do they want to talk about. They might not want to discuss their they were sleeping that day. They might not want to discuss the mental health. It might be something completely different. They might want to talk about how the dog is because the dog's not very well. And, and you know, actually saying to someone, oh, really, what, what's going on with the dog? And that might be a way of them, you know, you're building up trust all the time. Listen to what they're saying to you, building trust and saying, right, well, let's talk about maybe getting this dog to a vet and how can we support you with that? Um, it's about being led by the, you know, service user led. Um, and I think just sometimes being creative as well. So when, you, when you're out there using that whole personalisation with, with the person, if they think, well, this is going to work with this individual, it might be the smallest thing that they might need as well. And it doesn't take too much to, to be able to support someone with something like, um, for example, we had a, a chap that was, and um, was sleeping in a tent and he had a cat with him and he didn't want to leave his tent because he had a cat. So we said, right, we'll get you a cat box. You know, that's, that was the personalisation and that almost trauma-informed way of working as well because that's what he was worried about. If he's really worried about that and he doesn't want to engage with the service because of that, then we need to think, right, what can we do to support this person to feel that he's safe and his pet's safe and then he can start to work with us. So sometimes it's the smallest thing um, but it's a big thing for someone else. But just to listen um, to, to what's going on for that person and be a bit led by them. What do you think 
maybe could be some of the missteps or mistakes that people could fall into the trap of when they're trying to help service users mm-hmm. and perhaps not realize they might be doing something mm-hmm. not so good what what some what were some of the main would you say missteps or mistakes that people could make i think sometimes we think oh this person is, is just very difficult to engage well, actually it could be that we're not engaged with them in the way that they might need to be engaged with so you do have to, what works for one individual might not work for the next person. And assuming that, you know, that, that someone's was sleeping is what the, their main concern. And it's not always, it's not always the primary issue either with someone. What might be the primary issue is the mental health. And if we can start to support them around the mental health, then that might result in them being able to access support around the rough sleeping. So it's not just seeing what's directly in front of you sometimes, which is easy to do it. It's actually finding out what what really is going on for that person. And it's great within our organisation, we have lots and lots of people who are who employ Radcliffe's experience, myself included. And I think it's just so, so valuable to have people that, that, have, that have been in those similar situations that can really empathise and go out. And, and sometimes, if it's appropriate, share a little bit of that because it, it can be really beneficial to that person. You know, we have people working in the organisation as one of our um, workers who was rough sleeping for um, quite a long time. And, you know, when I chatted to him about his past experience, he said, everybody tried to help me, like, you know, support workers came out to help me all the time. He said, I just wasn't ready. He said, that was my community. I wanted to be there at that particular time and I wasn't ready to move on. And when I was ready to move on, I knew that CJ would help me because I'm going to walk through the door and ask for that help at that time. So I think it's being really patient for people as well. It's not going to happen necessarily overnight. It can take years. And unfortunately, it can take years for some people to feel that they're ready to move on. What's your thoughts on how we should support our staff in a trauma-informed way? I think that, the, you know, your staff are just, they, they hear and see and experience so much on a daily basis, literally on a daily basis, um, that they come back, you know, when I was managing an outreach service and the staff would go out and come back and tell me what, what's happened to someone. And it's, you really have to make sure that they feel safe, that they feel that they've got space to come back and, and speak to someone on a one-to-one if that's what they need. Our organisation, we have um, a wellbeing hour and um, so people can take a wellbeing hour every week and we have a wellbeing hub and, and so on. But I think what's really important is that someone can just sit down and say, oh, this has just happened and I really need to, you know, it's all, we have reflective practice and we have clinical supervision, but sometimes it's just sitting down and telling someone what's just happened and someone listening again, it's that whole listening you know, but it's so important and feeling that, you know, they can talk to their team as well. So it's not always a manager that they're going to come and spend time with, but they can talk to the peers. And those, those meetings that I chair are great for that as well. People being able to come along and say, you know, I, I have a manager's meeting once a week and it's a very informal check-in with the managers of the outreach services. And I say to them, this is a safe place coming. You know, if you've had a really rubbish week, just it's a safe place where you can say, you know, this is gone Oh my God, it's been horrendous. You know, it's, it's been the severe weather. We're all absolutely frazzled. But just some of that, I think, along with obviously things that you need to have in place, like your supervision, reflective practice, you know, they're really important. 
but I think people communicating with each other and having that space and time. And I was all, I would always say to my staff, if you ever need to take some time out, you, you, you say, I need to just go for a walk, I need to go for a cup of coffee, I need to just take some time out, Leslie, I'd say, just let me know you're going, so I know that you're safe, but take that time out, go and have a break, go meet your friend for coffee, do what you need to do, and then come back and let me know you're okay, because actually some days can just be just manic, we all know that, we've all had those days, and you just need that little breather, but making sure that people feel, you know, the other things that are really important about staff being adequately trained as well to deal with whatever's in front of them because it'd be wrong for us to send people out on the street and to outreach because they don't feel equipped to actually deal with someone that maybe presents with a certain issue so I know we talked about modern day slavery and, and things that can be really traumatic domestic abuse and, and so on so ensuring that the staff are also trained and equipped and understand how they can support someone so that they feel okay but yeah the staff are, are just I think especially after the pandemic, we really needed that time and support for people to feel okay again. Someone who's listening to this who might be in a similar role to yours, in a national role, thinking about how they could go about implementing a trauma-informed approach. What would be your top tips for someone listening to this, how they could go away and start implementing this across a, perhaps a national organisation? I think you need to have your, your focus groups so have people there, you know, who are really invested in this as well. Some people that are already doing things about realising there'll be services that are, that are working in that way without realising that that's what they're actually doing. So making sure that they're able to come together and share that best practice because it's so important. Looking at your policies and your procedures and your practices and doing that on a regular basis, really reviewing it, you know, because you can get into a bit of a rut maybe with a service. This is how we do it. This is how we've always done it. You know, but actually saying, is this how we've, you know, how we should always do it? Should we look at doing things a little bit differently? Shall we trial doing different days, different times? So for example, in an outreach service, who we trial, you know, in the summer, should we start early in the morning? Because it's not, you know, it, it, it gets light earlier. So we need to engage with people as, as the day goes on. But I think that, Definitely listen to the voice of lived experience and co-production. So bringing everybody together, you know, bringing people in to really review how you, if you're going to make some changes, getting feedback from your service users, for example, getting them involved in that whole process. So does the, does the times that we open, do they suit you? Would you like us to open at certain different times? Do we need certain areas that are for women only, for example? or certain evenings that we've got for women only so that women can come and feel safe in the in the service that might not want to be there when it's um when males are around. That's just one example of something that that we've done within the the services. But really reviewing those policies, procedures and practices to make sure that they are trauma involved and making sure that the staff feel supported and adequately trained as well to deal with whatever might be um you know, they might be experiencing sharing best practice is just fantastic coming together to talk about that and how we support one another what have you learned about yourself then the last couple of years of doing this role what have you learned most about yourself um i'm very nosy <laughs> i'm very nosy I'm, no i'm not I'm, ve I'm very inquisitive and i like i just really like to hear what's going on i love to hear what people are doing and you know, even if it's an individual case, I had an individual case just recently that someone 
um, dealt with. They came to me for support, but then they went and did that with their team. They, they dealt with this whole really complex case. And, um, you know, it was fantastic to, to see that we've got people across the organisation who are so dedicated. I think for me, learning about myself is that I'm never, you never ever stop learning. I'm just, it's just continuous. I'm always looking for different ways of doing things better, I guess. You know, I was always looking at our practices. And um, so for me, it's that I just need to continue doing what I do so that I can support our staff teams and make sure that the services do feel um, totally supported as well. And they can come to, to me or come to my meetings for support. And um, I just, it, I'm in a very, I very feel very privileged to be in the position that I'm in because I don't work just within CGL. I sit on um, the National Advisory Council, the Commonwealth Link, for example. So I meet up with people nationally to talk about what's going on and talk about the challenges. So I'm, I'm very inquisitive, I guess. And I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to homelessness. <laughs> I've been working in this, this field for 30 years now, so I can't ever see myself doing anything else. And I'm just very lucky that I'm still working with fantastic people every day. And also our service users are just, I've met some amazing people along the way. Our service users just inspire me as well. Thank you so much for your time, Lizzie. I just, I guess I'll just want to end with, uh, if people would like to know more about your organisation, what you do, or if they'd like to get in touch with yourself, how could they do that? Yep, so um, please do feel free to get in touch with me at my email address, uh, leslie.howard at cgl.org.uk. So please do get in touch if you want to talk about anything at all. If you want to talk about homelessness, you want to chat for hours about it, I can sit Because <laughs> I really am a bit of a geek when it, when it comes to homelessness and sleep. And I just think that we're always learning. We can always um, continue to learn and do better about it. So thank you very much for being our guest, Lizzie. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, and welcome back. But what I would say about this is, is that firstly, is to not see this approach as a tick box. I think when I first started delivering training and supporting teams around this about five years ago now, there was a, I got a feeling that a lot of people wanted it as a tick box. Oh, there's this new subject, trauma-informed care. Let's tick the box. But I think the, the danger with that is that you weren't, you weren't giving staff a culture shift, a culture change. You were giving them, it's almost like, you know, you know, in a game show when someone loses the main prize and they say, and it was always in the 19s game show, this is what you could have won. It always felt like that that, that was the problem with the one-off trauma-informed training course is we show people this way of working. This is what you could have won, but let's go back to our old way of working. And I think for me, the, the joy I've seen in the last couple of years is that people have started to now think about how they embed it into their teams and not just as a tip box. So considering how you get a basic awareness across to staff, you know, whether it's a, a, a training course for everyone, uh, internal workshops, or just some basic re reading material or bringing it up in team away days or team meetings, the idea is that you get everyone, and I mean everyone involved in this. You know, if you are a place that has a 
you know receptionists that work with with um, service users if you have cleaners that interact uh, staff on site that cook meals again if they're interacting with clients I even remember working with a fundraising team who had no direct contact other than after someone had gone through the service and they were interviewing them for case studies to to, to try and get some fundraising. And they, they didn't even realize when they were interviewing them for their case studies that they could have been unlocking all sorts of trauma, making things worse. Again, thinking about HR staff, how do they engage with staff? How can we help them to understand what vicarious trauma is and how it presents? The idea is you get the first step is in somewhere getting all of this message across. And I imagine if you're sat there going, yeah, but I'm a senior manager. I don't have the budget for this. What on earth can I do? First step is, is getting that information out there. It's not having things be that tick box, whichever sort of name you wish to put on it, whether it's trauma-informed process or trauma-informed care or whichever particular name you want to put to it. It's, It's making sure that it's not, a tick box exercise. I mean, we are people who work within charity sectors, third sectors, criminal justice. We are compassionate people. We work for organizations that were founded by compassionate people. And that should be the cornerstone and the basis of what it is that we're doing. And as soon as that becomes a tick box exercise, you lose that. And that's when, unfortunately, the uh, the slippery slope to something else begins. Absolutely. And it Again, this, as you say, that reminds people of their values, their organizational values, their personal values. Why do these organizations exist? Why am I doing this job? The the, the, the joy of trauma-informed practice is it drills right down into that and it aligns it up with that. It says, right, well, this is what you say you are. Let's make sure we get you to where you say you are. And I think that that fundamentally is what it's about. And that's, and that's the other joy with trauma-informed practice is that, Everyone applies it slightly differently. There is no right or wrong answer to this. There's no tick box of you must do it this way, you must do it that way. Everyone applies it in their own way. Again, whether you're a statutory service where people have to come to you, whether you are outreach, whether you uh, run a, 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 a premises, whether you are a day center, whether a drug, drug and alcohol service, a housing worker, again, it doesn't really matter. You can all apply this approach to your services in your own way. Different organizations have their own set of principles, but usually principle one is about safety. How do you create and maintain safety for yourself, the people you work with? And that often includes reshaping how we've classically managed risk, which is to suppress, to put people down or to stop things from happening. Safety is understanding why they are happening or why they have happened in the past and doing whatever we can to stop them from happening again in the future, maintaining safety rather than stopping crisis events from happening. Again, it's all—it's just about the shift. It's about a change. I say this to, to people who may be new to this subject or unsure about this subject. What I would say to you is, is think about that. Why, why do you do what you do? What is it about you that works in the field that you do? Why are you not working for a bank? Why are you not um, sweeping the road, working in a supermarket, being a pilot? I don't know. Just sounds like all the random jobs have just come into my head there. Um, you can tell you've got small children because they're the sorts of things you will have heard quite regularly. <laughs> not vet, yeah. Uh, but the idea is, is why why have you picked this, this job? Why have you picked this area? Usually it's because I want to help. I want to make a difference. I feel like I'm good with people, whatever it may be. Brilliant. 
Because if that's your answer to that question, if it's something like that, this is the approach for you. Because the bottom line is, is we call it trauma-informed, but basically for me, it's about human first. It's a human approach. That's the bottom line. It's about kindness. It's about compassion. It's about creating safety, validating people's experiences, and just being that consistent approach. It's not easy, as I said. It is tough. It is hard work, but the outcomes can be huge. And ultimately, that's that's what we do this for, to make a difference. There is so much more into this and how we go about embedding it. We all do things slightly differently. But if we can look and explore some of the good practice, maybe, just maybe, you can start to cherry pick some of the ideas for yourself. So until part two, which hopefully should be with you relatively soon, I have been David Gill. I've been Andrew James. And we will see you on the next episode of Frontline. Goodbye. Bye-bye.